1: Every note just wrapped around his soul From steel guitars to Memphis All the way to rock and roll oh, I can hear him play. I can still hear Cousin Bruce Morrow. uh You know, I guess throw it to me Or include me in the variety of the Children's Charity Radiothon And on this Thursday, kind of a throwback moment because, as I mentioned on Saturday night, Cousin Brucie has a new project. And that project is going to be now on WABC Radio, hosted, uh, of course, owned by Joan, John Katz and Well, Cousin Brucey's back on the radio Saturday nights. And um, it, it is exciting to feel my circle again um, become more and more full circle, if you will, and uh, so you can find out more about it, but at 84 years old, he'll be back on terrestrial radio from 6 to 9 p.m. every Saturday night, beginning September 5th, so don't want to miss that. Radio is going to have a bit of a conversation here because I noticed something over the weekend which I want to share, and it also involves my guest today, Kevin Lee Witt who is an actor a avid Yankee fan passionate about every pitch and every take he shoots we'll get to that uh, in that actor's career in just a minute but uh, one other thing that's that's I have to say is that if you want more of my thoughts on Kamala Harris becoming VP just tune to my August 1st 2019 podcast after the debate, which Tulsi Gabbard brought up a lot of stuff, and that shot her to number one on Google. Yes, she was trending on Google, Tulsi Gabbard, but find out why. <clears throat> it has to do with Kamala Harris and uh, August 1st, and, and that's all I got to say on that, because I, I don't want to spend too much time, but I do want to spend a little time on the idea of radio in 2020. What do we have in talk radio? We didn't have sports talk because all of that was speculation. Will they play? Will they finally play? Can they play? And then finally, and I was thinking about this because in early May, in early June, all you got was the coronavirus reports on every station possible. Then once July hit, finally started getting some sports talk. Started to see some spring training or, or summer camp. Started to see some football talk. Started to mostly see basketball and hockey as well. And here we are, August thirteenth. Everything seems in full swing. We've got baseball. We got another Yankees sweep this week at the stadium. Uh Braves come in, and get swept by the Yanks. We've got the Islanders coming back against the Capitals in the first game of their Stanley Cup playoff hunt. Uh, we've got the Nets actually playing off against the Raptors in the 2020 NBA playoffs. So all of a sudden, what we're hearing on radio isn't the dark, drab death totals. It's finally some good sports radio. I'm excited about that as we head into the fall. And, you know, I know that the narrative has been that college sports will not be playing the fall. Football won't be playing the fall. But just getting word today that the ACC, the SEC, and the Big 12 will soldier on and attempt to play football in the fall. Huge news, by the way. As we saw the Pac-12 and we also saw the Big 10 say, no, we're, we're not going to try football this year. So, And then the Big East canceling fall sports. But I might just be wearing the Notre Dame Irish. I might be wearing the Clemson. Uh, Big 12, I don't really have a a team there. But, uh, you know, it's good to see that at least a few conferences are attempting. It's also good to see Jerry Jones wants fans in the stands for Dallas Cowboy football home games. I'm a giant fan. Our governor said no. Well, our neighbor's governor of New Jersey, Governor Murphy said no, that won't be happening. But good for Jerry Jones to to try it. And, um, yeah, on that note, when I tag Yankee Twitter here at Alex Kerr Podcasting, I find very few people that align with actually liking a tweet or interacting with me until I found Kevin Witt. Now, Kevin, you might remember him from a Troy Palomalo hair commercial because that's his cover photo on Twitter. Uh, first of all, Kevin, thanks for joining us today.
0: Of course, Alex. I'm glad to do uh, do this and talk to you.
1: And uh, yes, we both have a fascination with the Yankees. You said you watch every pitch, but I want to put that aside for a minute. You're also, uh, you were on Bravo TV. You're an actor. So from an actor perspective, from a personal perspective, how has the quarantine affected your life? And do other actors talk to you about their similar experiences um, that they might be going through? Sure. Sure.
0: Um, Believe it or not, I just did a show on Pandemic 2020 where I had a 30 minute interview. And I was asked the same question how it's hitting actors like me that are, you know, C and D list actors. Um, I was asked how it's affecting musicians, how it's affecting actors, and how it's affecting sports. And to be quite honest, I think it's affecting actors the most because as you see, sports are coming back. And thank the good Lord, we've got the ability to start watching the Yankees. We're not promised tomorrow, but. We've got a baseball season going on, and I'm loving that. But uh, musicians are also, you know, have been able to, even the small-scale cover bands have been able to go online on a Tuesday night or a Sunday, and they can, you know, put their Venmo up and get donations for the band and do an acoustic set and stuff like that. But if you think about it, actors like myself, who have not worked since February 12th of this year and make a living at it full-time, um i just booked something luckily this week a big job that i did a fitting for friday but i haven't worked since february 12th other than that and if you think about it it's not like we can just find a way to make money or put up a monologue or or, you know make people laugh and put our venmo up and stuff like that so all the actors i know and myself are extremely worried about the business and i know that if things ever come back things will be great and I can start grinding it out again. But right now we don't know if we're ever going to be on a law and order SVU set or a commercial set again, and we'll get to work a 14 hour day and make some overtime instead of an eight hour day. So I'm, I'm really worried about it, but happy to answer anything you want to ask me.
1: Well, cause we talked off air, you're a New Yorker for 17 years, which can makes you a New Yorker no matter how long you've been here, but now you're a displaced hey. New Yorker and I know you're dying to get back here. So I, uh, I'm sure that's added to the stress as well.
0: You can't imagine. I am in a place called Shelton, Connecticut, which is a just fine place for a lot of people, but it's not where I belong. It's not where I should be. And here I am. The stress is overwhelming when you're not living where you're supposed to be, where you're not self-sufficient, which actors need to be. You know, I'm used to, in my prime, I was grinding it out on the subway to three, four, five, six, seven. Auditions and go sees and castings a day, and you don't need a car. And you know, living in a a humble, decent apartment in Midtown. And now, all my thoughts are concerned with when is the right time to go back to New York City. How am I? I've never gotten an apartment in my life, and I'm happy to admit this. I've been very successful, and I've been very. You know, you have the highs and lows of the industry, but I've been on. Every station I've been on national TV, I've worked with Chris Rock, De Niro, it doesn't matter. I don't have the paperwork, and that's, a, I think, a fault in the economy and in the country. I don't have the paperwork to get an apartment on my own. So, you know, some people might be embarrassed by that, but that's the reality of it. So I've always had, had help, whether it was a, you know, a good college buddy who's now married with multiple kids that's not around as much anymore, or the way I got my best apartment in Manhattan was, honestly, because of, uh, at the time, I was on a show. And they knew me from TV. So right now I'm just, you can't imagine the stress of not wanting to be somewhere and not knowing when to come back to New York city. When is it going to be safe due to the pandemic and the other nightmares going on in the world? But I need an apartment. I just, I need a safe place to live where you have privacy, where you can get sleep at night and you can be effective. And that's really scaring me that I don't have that
1: right now. And to be quite honest, where you can really rebuild yourself and the career. Um, would you say leadership here in New York? I don't know if I'm into it or not, but is leadership scaring you from coming back or the pandemic? What, What is stopping you? I'm not
0: get, Yeah, I'm not really going to get into leadership. I'm, I'm just talking what is stopping me right now. A couple things. Number one, we're just not... You know, there were a ton of productions before February 12th. I mean, we had... I don't know if it was 25 or 30 TV shows filming. And, you know, I'm a member of Screen Actors Guild, and I have been since... 1998 so there's a lot of non-union work but i have to do union work and all the movies all the tv shows new york was doing well everything was just so different before this pandemic started so what's stopping me is a the safety and the coronavirus i mean if i was in new york i'm like i'm a six-three, two 270 pound actor which is rare i need to eat like three four meals a day i don't know that it's this has been kind of a blessing in disguise because I'm out here and I'm working out and I'm still applying for jobs and I'm just just starting to get the bites. I just booked this job for the NFL this week, but, um, yeah, it's what's keeping me from there is a, the safety, you know, I don't want to come there with no work and have to go out to eat every meal like you do in New York and just things are not normal there from what I'm hearing as far as, you know, the stores being boarded up, looting, safety, coronavirus. So there's just so many factors. And B, If I had work every day there, the ability to work, I would. But just judging by what I had to go through to walk in a production office on Broadway and do a fitting, I mean, I had to go through like seven protocols, sign like four release forms. I'm worried that all my time in life is going to be spent
1: getting my temperature taken
0: and release forms for coronavirus instead of acting.
1: It is kind uh, of crazy, right? A change on the set for sure. Now, let me ask you this. Are you... Would you say some people, when you did walk around the streets of New York, would be like, hey, I know you from here or from here. I mean, you were on Millionaire Matchmaker on Bravo, and so did you get recognition just on the street being out and about? Because that does happen in New York City.
0: Yeah, here's what's crazy. We're in a a city with just megastars on every block. I mean, I lived on 52nd and 8th and 56th and 8th for the last 15 years before I was on the Upper East Side. And, uh, you know, every day you see A- and B-list actors on the street, and it's not that abnormal. But believe it or not, I don't really get recognized on the street now. Like, people might do a double take or kind of recognize you and not be able to place it. But when Millionaire Matchmaker, of all things, was running, I am not lying, I would it was running on Bravo, like, seven times a day. And I would walk around the city. My friends would crack up with a Sharpie in my pocket because – if I walked by Starbucks in a window, people would start banging on the window and look at me. When I was in Madison square garden for sporting events, I had kids coming up to me during timeouts at a Maryland Turks game or a Knicks game. And I was signing stuff with the Sharpie. It was the craziest experience of my life because nobody comes up to you for doing head of state with Chris rock or De Niro cast me and, and things like that. People recognize me from reality TV. <laughs> it's crazy. Kind of,
1: it's, it is, it is fascinating. And, um, so I'm sure, obviously, you have those memories. Would you say that got you through the pandemic? Like, okay, here's what I've accomplished already. I can get back to doing that. Has that got you through this whole uh, time?
0: Well, the bad thing is we're not through the pandemic yet. But the the positive is somehow so I don't know why I'm happy, but I am happy right now. Somehow I'm being positive and and getting through this despite the lack of work. I'm just making it into a positive that I'm here for a reason and. I'm going, I, I know I always have the ability to work. So unless the industry never comes back, I'm a grinder. I know what I'm good at. I'm not, you know, I've got friends that can do a 22 minutes Shakespeare monologue better, way better, way better actors than me. And I know what I'm good at. I'm good at delivering. I've got common sense. I'm a hard worker. I'm a grinder. Got a college degree. You know, I've, I took a different route to acting, but I, I'm good at delivering like 30 seconds of dialogue for a commercial. I'm good at a couple pages. But, you know, when I get an eight page scene and I have to lock it down for three days, people don't understand this. Like they think we get paid all this money. Yeah. When we hit stuff, you get paid a little bit of money occasionally. But how about when I go to an audition? I don't get paid for that. When I go, I have to prepare for it for a couple of days, then I go to a callback. I don't get paid for that. You know, it's there's just so many things that I don't get paid for when I'm working my butt off. The things I work the hardest on, I don't get paid for. And then you hit the lottery, or you hit a Troy Polamalu commercial that shot in LA, you know, that's when you hit the jackpot, but that's few and far between, you know,
1: Kevin, I don't know if you've been on, I don't know how many platforms you've been on during this whole pandemic, but on this one, I'd like to ask you, how can the industry make it easier for actors that, as you say, prepare day by day for audition, and literally their mind is so focused on it that even after they get a little anxious waiting for the result. So how can the industry I don't know if you want to say make it easier, but make it less stressful for you and other actors looking to make it out there.
0: I'm trying to figure that out because I am more of, I'm not a millennial. I I still try to book. uh, I still try to act younger. I I was a basketball and a baseball coach at a pretty big program at the high school. I played at, I, I act a lot younger than I am. I hope that I look a lot younger than I am. And I book work for the age range. I'm a lot younger than, and I want to be younger than I am. So, I'm not really a millennial. The problem I'm seeing with the industry now, and I don't know how we're going to correct this, is people that are less skilled actors that have the best setup and technology, you know, self-tapes are a big thing now. I'm the kind of guy that wants to go to an audition, hand him my composite card, which is a modeling card for those that don't know, with like six pictures of you and a kind of a headshot on the front, but it shows that you can work with dogs, animals, females, whatever, And, you know, you'll have a sports shot, a business suit. I like to hand somebody a comp card or a headshot, look the client in the eye, slate myself, and read with somebody, get some feedback, and walk out. Like, that's my way to audition. Now, I'm terrified because somebody in Brooklyn that's a hipster that has the greatest technology in the world can have a storyboard up of the thing. He can do the audition 100 times. He can have perfect lighting and everything self-tape now. So somebody that doesn't even know how to deliver two words when a real camera's on them can refine that a hundred times and get these jobs over somebody like me that has more experience in doing real jobs. So that's the newest problem I see. And we don't want to make the casting process and all these people, you know, extinct. So that's how kind of the industry, you know, that's kind of how the industry is going. It seems like everything is the new technology. You know what I mean? Like everything. We didn't even know what
1: Zoom was a year ago. Exactly. Yeah. Kevin, you know, and we're talking with Kevin Witt. I believe it's Kevin Lee Witt. Thank you for taking time out this morning to talk with me. And um, on Twitter, I know you're there. Where can people find you really quickly before we keep the convo going?
0: Yeah, of course. Um, and I would appreciate the support because this is something interesting we haven't talked about. I'm at Kevin Lee Witt, really simple. At Kevin Lee Witt, K-E-V-I-N-L-E-E-W-I-T-T on Twitter and Instagram. And little do you know, you know, social media, the biggest national campaign I booked, which was for the Yankees and Nike, which we will have to talk about, um, was through Facebook. But as a D-list actor, when I was on that show, I had 5,000 people on Facebook in minutes. Like, I've had 5,000 people on Facebook, which for some reason is the maximum, and I don't understand it still, with Facebook 10 years ago. But Instagram and Twitter you don't think of these things as important and everybody thinks everything's self-serving and you're just putting stuff up or you're cocky or you're this or that. No, agencies ask me when I just booked this NFL campaign, they ask me for your Instagram because they don't want, they don't want me to send them some perfect headshot or whatever. They want to see what I really look like, like what I look like when I'm at the pool or the gym or at a concert or whatever. So you don't know how much the support means to people like me. So anybody that follows is great. But Instagram and Twitter are something, I need to work on a lot more, and uh, you know, get more followers. And, and I try to always provide. I put probably ninety percent of my stuff as sports because I'm typecast and I do sports. But I just try to keep it funny and light and keep things interesting. That's why you and I follow each other, and I find you interesting. And yeah, man. Instagram and Twitter are important, even though the normal common person in the business world is like, what, what an idiot. This guy's putting up pictures of himself. No, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not putting pictures up of spaghetti dinners. I'm putting pictures up that mean something. And I got cast in my biggest, biggest commercial ever from Facebook.
1: That is amazing. Well, uh, on that vein, tell us about that. So you're with the Yankees and Nike on this project. What, what exactly was it? And uh, take us down the of the for a second.
0: Yeah, well, this is recent. This is a good news, bad news. This is last fall, and they're running a casting. Uh, Catherine, good casting director for Vitamin and Wrist. She just put out on Facebook, and I've, I've got the 5,000 people, so I only see things here and there, and I feel like my Facebook's broken. <laughs> I post something on Facebook, it gets 20 likes, sometimes 100. Somebody with only 300 people will post a picture of their uh, a salad, and they'll get 300. So I don't really know the algorithms of Facebook, but anyway. I saw the casting out on Facebook, and uh, it was for all calling all New Yorkers for a casting call. This is last fall, and I'm a union actor that's worked with the biggest of the big and the smallest of the small. And it says we need firemen, we need acidic Jews, we need policemen, we need lawyers, we need Yankees fans, we need this and that. So I busted it from hearing, you know, I, I busted it in the city. Had an audition, had a callback, was supposed to be a fireman, had my dog tags on, and I've played a fireman before. I typically get typecast into Secret Service, Bodyguard, Bouncer. You know, I, I double all these athletes, which we will talk about. And the bigger and fatter I am, crazy enough, the more I work. <laughs> my mom's a little disappointed in me, but there's a million six foot three, 220 pound in good shape, good looking guys. There's a million. There are not many six foot three, 270 pound guys. So I have far less competition the bigger and fatter I am, which we can get into because I do extra large fit modeling and stuff like that. But anyway, so I go in and I have this week-long process, and I'm down to the final two. And the casting directors worked with me before, and their assistant, they're calling me. They're like, Kevin, they're in the production meetings, whatever. And all of a sudden, you find out it doesn't go your way. I'm like, what? I just spent a week of auditioning in New York, and I'm going to be a fireman on a Nike campaign with the Yankees, my my favorite team. This is last fall in October. All of a sudden, I don't get the job, but they hire me as a baseball-like consultant because they know I can actually play ball. That's the one skill I have. Every actor thinks they can do everything, but they can't. You know what I mean? They put up Uh, – Yeah,
1: I I get you. That is so cool that you were actually employed as a baseball consultant.
0: Right. So they didn't give me the job as the fireman, but they really liked. They here's what's unfair. They ended up hiring, and of course, he deserves it. But you know, he makes a living as a fireman. I'm an actor. They hired a fireman that's been like in the fire department 25 years because he had all the gear and whatever. So how am I going to beat out a fireman when I'm playing one as an actor? You know what I mean? Well, so Jason, yeah, and, uh, uh, Kevin, the fireman.
1: That, yeah, that, that inspires ahead. my next question. Then, so if you don't get it as an actor, would you go into some baseball operations? Like, have you now? thought, well, if they think of me as a baseball consultant, maybe I can go that route. somewhere. you kidding me? I
0: know know the numbers well enough. The MLB network could call me today. I could talk baseball all day, watch every game, and have an interest in it. But, yeah, that's a a whole other topic. So let me just finish what happened. So they hired me. Nike hired me as a baseball consultant, but they know I'm an actor. So I'm the guy delivering the ball. I'm popping everybody in the glove. The baseball commercial is called Around the Horn, and it's a Nike commercial. You haven't seen it yet because they haven't aired it yet because of the cheating Houston Astros in the pandemic. But that's what we're going to talk about. So I'm throwing the ball and popping a kid right in the glove. I'm popping the fireman right in the glove. I'm popping rappers in the glove. I'm popping Saquon Barkley. Me and Saquon Barkley on 25th and Madison. I'm hitting them square in the glove, playing ball with Saquon Barkley when I've doubled Eli Manning forever. I'm like living this dream. And the great thing that happened in this Nike commercial is they gave me the role as the regular fan. So I have on like a pullover, a backwards hat, whatever. So I got my own scene and my own role. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. Uh, the Houston Astros, the night before we filmed, if you remember on that Sunday night, little Altuve, the cheater, uh, they hit the home run off Chapman. The Yankees don't make the world series. I'm a real baseball fan. A lot of these people like the Yankees and, you know, whatever. But I'm, like, devastated. I'm up all night on a Sunday, and then I have to film Monday, Tuesday, this national commercial I book. They never released the commercial because, A, the Yankees didn't make the World Series, or, B, you know, you don't know what happens. A lot of people shoot commercials, but this budget was so big, you think it's can't miss. And I've learned in my industry, you don't tell people you're in something I was in The Good Shepherd with Robert De Niro. I'm at the real premier, premiere with my girlfriend, and Matt Damon's like son comes up to me and looks at me, and he's like, young, that played Matt, young, young Matt Damon, and they're like, "You know, I'm not even in the film. When you think you can't be cut, you can be cut from anything. Mm-hmm. Like I had dialogue. I had looping sessions with De Niro. So anyway, the moral of the story is this Yankees commercial, and I despise the Astros now. I used to like the Astros and respect them. And we I'm sure you've got your opinions on the, the Houston Astros and what they did and the cheating scandal that's all got swept by the pandemic. But because of the Yankees not making it and because we didn't have a baseball season this year, all the only information I've gotten from production or anything is, yeah, they scrapped the commercial, which I can't believe because Saquon Barkley was in it, Paxton was in it. Uh, it was the biggest Nike commercial ever with all these characters, and it was going to be great. And that was going to make my life with residuals. But nope, it hasn't come out yet.
1: Well, I mean, the cutting room floor, I guess from an actor perspective, could be really devastating. See, I'm an editor for radio. So to me, the cutting room floor is, okay, how do we make time in an interview? But now you put it in a different perspective for me. It's like, well, the cutting room floor really could be devastating for someone who's really working at this day in and day out, right?
0: Couldn't be more devastating. Nothing's more embarrassing than taking your real girlfriend up on 66th and Broadway to the theater to see yourself in The Good Shepherd. The good news is I still make residuals for that movie this day. But Robert De Niro had his hand on my back. It's one of the greatest moments of my life in The Good Shepherd, and I'm discovering the murder of Timothy Hutton, and he tells me how he would play the scene. And after we did it, I went in to do a looping session where you do the sound again. Uh, I had a special session where I got paid for that. And then you go see the movie, The Good Shepherd. I'm not even in it. It's crazy. Like you think it's impossible. You're in a pivotal scene calling the cops at a murder scene. They ended up, they had like six hours of footage and they cut it's still a long movie. They cut it down to like two and a half hours. So I got cut and it is totally devastating and embarrassing. Yes.
1: Um, by the way, you're just remind me cause I happen to watch, um, I happen to watch Friends sometimes and Joey, you know, goes through all of this and he gets cut, but, uh,
0: yeah,
1: but it's not really a funny matter now that you mentioned it, like they made light of it, No, but I'm sure, I'm sure. Go for it.
0: No, no, of course it's devastating. Like they, of course they make light of it because what else can you do? But I'm telling you, man, and, and. The cutting room floor is, is probably one of the worst things. The other is when you get a callback or two or three and you invest a week of your life in a project. I, I remember a parquet or a margarine commercial and you're on hold at 6.15 at night the night before commercial and then they call and you'll never know. Did they choose another actor? Did they have two of you on hold? Did they scrap the campaign? So you can't imagine how devastating it is. I'd rather just go to an audition and never hear a word about it and not get it than get a callback and get to the final two or final three or final five, you know what I mean?
1: Kevin, from the way you talk, I sense you're very integrity-based. So when you see people like Lachlan and Felicity Huffman and all this college admission stuff, it sort of is an example of the culture in Hollywood that people will do whatever they can to get ahead. But I sense you do this by the book and and work hard instead of trying to find easy ways or shortcuts.
0: I'm really glad you said that because, yes, there are... Uh... <laughs> i've said it a million times whether it's dating whether it's anything nice guys finish last and unfortunately i'm from the south and i you know you put on the facade i'm a jokester and i'm a comedian and i do improv and i do all this stuff and people take you the wrong way based on appearance and and whatever but yeah i i am honest to a fault i didn't get cast on the bachelor which is the dumbest thing i've ever done because i was so honest they uh I ended up doing Millionaire Matchmaker, which was great, and we should talk about that. I got picked by both Millionaire S's and got all the publicity, and it was great, but 97% of those people on The Bachelor are successful, and I got interviewed at the Hudson Hotel one-on-one, was down to the final 40, excuse me, I should say for The Bachelorette. I wasn't going to be The Bachelor. I was going to be in the dating pool, and if I could do this over, I would have lied and just said, yeah, I can see myself marrying that girl. And they asked me if I liked blondes or brunettes and they asked me a million questions. And I was just honest when all I should have done is gotten in the best shape of my life, made it like into a fraternity party, dated the girl, got into like the final four or three and done the whole publicity thing. But I didn't do that. And I was honest. And just like everything else, I I have a couple actors I trust only my buddy, Jimmy, the actor. I'll give him auditions, he'll give me auditions, and we genuinely want things for each other. But but 97% of actors you can't trust, and they're jealous, and they don't have the best interest for you, and that's what's really tough, because being an honest guy in this industry, in Hollywood, as you know, is really tough.
1: Kevin, though, I can tell you're very proud to be Kevin Lee Witt. So what I'm trying to say is um, you're an actor for a reason. You want to still be out there. So what drives you to continue this?
0: I would say, well, I got, crazy enough, acting is probably my third passion, which is a weird thing to say, because I love music and sports so much, and I played six instruments, I was only good at piano, I lived for sports, I played football, basketball, baseball, I loved tennis and golf, I coached it, and I get typecast into all that, but acting, why am I still in it? I Somehow, even though I have a college degree in communications, and everybody's told me a million times, you need to jump ship and go into sales and make six figures doing this and that i just i'm a people person like i just like i like the industry i've built my whole career on this with having common sense and work so hard it would be a really hard thing and i'm facing this right now i don't know what to do people every day are telling me you got to get another job you got to do this you got to do that and everybody has side jobs and stuff and that's great My side jobs are within the industry, though. I do hand modeling. I do extra-large fit modeling. I do print work. I do commercial print, big and tall catalogs, stuff like that. I just can't imagine not being in the industry. I can't imagine jumping ship and going and getting a sales job, and I hope I'm not forced into that because I'm proud to have done this. My mom owned a dance studio growing up. Um, I lost my dad when I was nine, and my sister was two, so she would have me as a stagehand running her Center for the Performing Arts. And then she would always give me a little a, a little role in the production, like whether it was singing in the rain or cats or whatever, and I'd be in a leotard, and I'd have to explain I was all embarrassed. I'd be like, yeah, I'm taking tap belly and jazz for coordination for athletics, and I would justify it. But I've been in the industry basically since I was a kid, and it's all I really know. And that's, that's just I'm proud of it, and I just want to keep doing it.
1: Kevin, though, that's why your story is so much more awesome than, as you say, someone who may not know two lines – but can get a job. It's like you're working hard, right. and yet here we are, millennials. I'm sorry to say, taking over New York. Uh, I, yep. I know transplant may be a bad word, but when I see it on Instagram, <laughs> it drives me crazy. It's like no, it's my city. It's people like Kevin who grind it out. You're kind of here because maybe mom or dad was able to get you to New York. You know, I don't know, but it's like right. it drives me nuts. I guess is what I'd say.
0: Yeah, the grind is – the thing that people will never understand is the grind because you only see the finished product. You see me in Barbados and Miami on Millionaire Matchmaker. You will never know the story of my mom telling me that day. I had like six other auditions. I walked into that audition as a throwaway thing, and I didn't know a lot about reality TV and Bravo at that point. They had Top Chef, uh, Real Housewives, and Millionaire Matchmaker. I swear to you that was a throwaway audition on the way home, and all of a sudden – something clicks and they put you on a fast track next thing you know i had like four audition days got into the dating pool and next thing you know i was filming for five days in barbados and miami so just the weirdest things happen but nobody knows the grind of those other four auditions i went to that day that i've obviously forgotten about that i have no idea what i didn't get that day like i'm up against 100 to 350 people that look at me every time i walk in a room
1: uh and by the way uh just some breaking news i don't know if you know or work with oh, some Redstone or Viacom, but he just passed away at ninety-seven. So I don't know if you had any interaction with him on a set or something, but he's he's now passed away today Jeez. at ninety-seven. That's
0: rough news. That's I'm sad to hear that. I've I've had a lot of interaction with a lot of people, and who knows that might be for you and I on another podcast another yeah. time. But I uh, I I. I've worked with so many. Unfortunately, you usually remember the bad people you work with because it sticks out and I've got my stories. And and a lot of the people are good. I'm just telling you most of the people in the industry are not necessarily honest or gentlemen or whatever, but but most people are nice and good and the crews I work with and all those people are really good. I've got you know, I've met 100 famous people that are really Eli Manning and Peyton are great. Troy Polamalu is off the charts, man. He's from Samoa. I got to eat with him and his wife on set and his kid. And then he's jumping over the line and decapitating Joe Flacco. And I love the split personality he had. You know what I mean?
1: I got you. David, yeah, David, that... Cohn
0: is, David Cohn's amazing. and he like I don't know if you've watched David Cohn, but he even follows me on Twitter. Like David Cohn's a legend, and he's a great guy. I was his stand-in. I got to pitch in Yankee Stadium as David Cohn. Jeter's a good guy, even though I don't know him that well. But I got to do some stuff with him. And Eli and Peyton are my bread and butter. Like, I love Eli. Eli throws me his BlackBerry, loves better than Ezra. It's just everybody else jocking him and wanting him to sign. You know, I've never even – I've got a million things that I'm in as Eli Manning. I am Eli Manning, except for his That's face. Amazing. Like, if you see my arm or my back or me breaking through glass, I'm Eli Manning. And I'm calming him down when he didn't get hurt for 17 years because they have me in a harness breaking through glass with Deion Sanders. <laughs> it's crazy, it's but they're, they're really nice guys. Like these people are nice, and it's everybody else that causes them to be to the point where they have to have a guard up. You know, all yeah. the people on a commercial shoot want to sign football by Eli. This and that. Eli treats me like we're just normal, regular friends
1: because I'm not trying to take
0: 50 pictures with wow. him. And remember, you know, this is a Peyton, this is a working thing.
1: He and Peyton were raising a way that respects everybody, right? So Archie just has really built up an amazing family. And Eli and Peyton continue that. And yeah, I could see Eli, you know, I went to a school for kids with disabilities in Long Island at Albertson, the Henry Viscardi school. Okay. And Eli Manning took time out to go to this fundraiser we had years ago. I wasn't at that one, but I saw pictures. So when these guys, and, and this is why athletes that demand to get paid for every game in a 60-game season, those athletes tick me off because it puts a bad light on On guys like Eli. On, yes, guys like Jeter, who, by the way, you know, I have this connection with the Yankees' new George Steinbrenner. I've seen I'd see him almost every game. After a game, like, you know, hey, great game, or we'll get him tomorrow. One time I'm in Tampa, Florida with Derek G. you know, with the Yankees in spring training. Kevin, from the on-deck circle, Derek Jeter turns around recognizes my dad, and I says, oh, you're playing hooky, huh? I mean, this is how... Much of a connection That's amazing. So.
0: That's a really good story. And I feel like Eli and Peyton are like that. Peyton was my bread and butter. Peyton was the first guy. I did a lot of the stunt double and stand. I did Sony with him. I did Oreos. I would be licking Oreos at center court at the U.S. Open across from Serena and Venus Williams. And Peyton would only be there for like, Peyton would be there for like three hours. I would be there for three days because they got to shoot it from the back to get the Williams sisters and all this stuff. And my mom. You know, people that don't know Peyton's arm aren't going to know that's my arm and not his. So I've got a million stories about those guys. And it's funny you said Archie. My mom went to Ole Miss and twirled in the Cotton Bowl. My mom knew Archie down in uh down at Ole Miss. And then I end up being, I am, you know, if you Google, I'm probably their number one. I'd say I booked 50% of the jobs for Peyton and Eli uh, in their career starting in like 2003, 2004. So I, I love those guys. It's just a shame that, hey, they retired, now you're kind of out of touch with them. Eli just joined Twitter. I mean, it's just hard to, if I could see Eli, it'd be like no time had passed, you know? He used to throw me as BlackBerry and trust me with everything. And it's just a shame, you know, I, I hate that these guys are retiring. It makes me feel old because that was my bread and butter. Even if it was only for three days a year, four days a year, or five days a year, that's how I made half my income, working as Eli and Peyton Manning.
1: Well, so while we're on the sports vein, by the way, um, and actually I knew Tom Coughlin too, Tom's a great guy, but while we're on the sports vein, I don't know if you want to tell us what you did last night, but I heard you hit a homer, and I know that baseball has really gotten you through this whole (laughs) crazy time, so yeah, tell us the impact sports is having on you during this whole process.
0: Sure. I can tell you right now, with 100% sincerity, I was at, you know, everybody battles with all these health issues and mental health is a real thing. And I have serious sympathy and I would help anybody that ever tells me they're struggling with that. Cause I've struggled with it. My family struggled with it and I'm not too proud to admit it, but you know, some people medication doesn't work for them. Some people it's, it's just circumstances and trying to be positive. And you know, I just, when, when this pandemic hit, it was like March 12th and I was ready Here in Connecticut, March Madness, I live for. I went to the University of Maryland. I went to two Final Fours in 01 and 02. And it's the greatest sporting event I've ever been to, ever. Like four days, four colleges, all the alumni, everybody. But when this pandemic hit, I was literally on my way up the street to the one great thing I loved in Connecticut. There's a bar called Arugas. I was ready to watch 12 hours of basketball, and I had like eight out of my next nine days plotted out. And all of a sudden, if you remember, at Madison Square Garden, which I used to walk to when I was living in New York, where I should be right now, they stopped the game at halftime and all oh, the yeah. conferences started canceling their tournaments. And my, I got tears in my eyes. I'm like, wait a minute. So I'm stuck in Connecticut, haven't worked for a month. I'm during a pandemic. Everybody's unhealthy. People are dying. And I knew somebody that died every day for a while because of the, they were on the crew, whether they were on the crew of Law and & Order. and. It was terrible. You'd see the things out of the 5,000 people on Facebook. Somebody would post something every day. And I'm like, okay, so sports are gone. There's no March Madness. There's not going to be any Masters. I I just didn't even know what to do. So, yes, baseball coming back. And me playing, I've been in the Broadway show business league since 2003. The Jonas Brothers. I've played with Tony Danza. I've drank Prosecco with Marla Maples, Trump's wife. Whether you like him or not, she's a very – charming lady, and uh, I've got a million stories and experiences with that, but my softball season was canceled this year, so I didn't even have the opportunity to communi- you know, commute from here into the city, something I know. So luckily, my buddy Joe out here in Connecticut, I did get to play. I'm glad you mentioned that because we talked yesterday, but yeah, I got to play a game last night in Milford, Connecticut where I've never, I know nothing about Connecticut, and I hit a bomb into the trees uh, last night. We won like 19-2. to so
1: that is it. that is thrilling. You know, just swinging the bat is just so – to make contact for me is just nice. But to have it go launch over the defense, that's, that's even better, I'm sure. So
0: Yeah, it's a, and I'm really glad you told me that about Jeter acknowledging you and all because, you know, he's super busy. And I, there's been times where he's blown me off or not recognized me. So I'm just glad that he took the time and recognized you and, uh, and your dad and talked about hooky and – dude he's the captain he's the he's the greatest ever so uh i've got and it pictures was like of the, me the remembrance with him
1: and like that the the carry seemed to show so which was great it was it was amazing so yeah and then and, last and night
0: we both go ahead we both watched the game last night and i'm glad we got back on the uh On the winning end of things, and yes, if I'm not on a – I always say if I'm not – when the baseball playoffs start, it's just like March Madness for me. I've enjoyed the other team's games, but yes, I'm diehard Yankee. Since 1998, when I came up from D.C., I was still living there. There was a campaign, and I'd love if any of your listeners are – I can't figure it out still. It was called, like, Anski. What is Anski? And there's a guy who has a Twitter handle about something like that. But these big, fat guys painted Anski on their body – and there were all these commercials we shot with David Cone, Hideki Arabu, all these great players. And that was like my first taste of the Yankees, where I got to be Cone at the old Yankee Stadium pitching. And that's when I started loving the Yankees, because they, to be quite honest, I'm from D.C., and the Orioles were terrible, but I, I did like the Orioles. They were never my favorite team. But the Yankees were paying me. So people would call me a traitor and all this stuff. I'm like, are you kidding me? You don't think I'm going to like the guys I'm working with, like Derek Jeter, and want them to do well, when also the Yankees are paying me? And I got to film all this cool stuff, and I was in Tampa, I hit a bat, I hit a ball out of Legends Field, which I'm sure you know down in Tampa, where the Yankees really play. I hit a ball out And up, that's
1: for, yeah, and that's up, where Jeter actually it. out of school. It was, there you go. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I got to hit a ball out of the stadium there with a wood bat in a game, and I've just had the greatest experiences with the Yankees and got to shoot a lot of stuff with them, and I just pray this this thing I, gotta, I shot last fall. It might be, might be gone forever, but please, if they if they got to bring back. It's called Around the Horn, and the premise is everybody throwing the ball around New York from a susha I was with a susha throwing it to him, throwing it to Paxton, throwing it to, to a fireman, throwing it to a Hasidic Jewish guy, throwing it to... Everybody. It was just, it's an amazing I remember premise that for a campaign, commercial. Now that you
1: it. I think they refreshed it over the years, but I kind of remember that campaign. But uh, Kevin, did you ever meet Mr. Steinbrenner at Yankee Stadium during all this? No, time?
0: I hate, I hate that I haven't. No, I never, you know what? I think I might have seen him from afar at Legends Field or whatever, but the days we were filming the commercial at the Yankee Stadium, I never saw him. I never saw him.
1: Well, it was probably an off day as well, I guess. That was the thing. But no, Coney is another guy that's a stand-up player and a stand-up athlete. And, you know, many people, and this is why I kind of want to have him on before the whole uh, season started because, if you remember, he was the guy in 94, 95 trying to negotiate a season as a union rep. So I'm sure he looks at what happened to now, and Tony Clark is a good guy, but it's just been a mess between Major League Baseball and the players' union. So I really wonder what goes on Tony's mind when he's been there. You know, he was in the midst of the 94 strike. He was in the midst of getting us back in 95. So I'm sure he's been following that closely, too. I don't know. I got, I got to figure that out. But, um...
0: Yeah. It's just weird yeah, how... Coney, but Coney's really a himself. great guy. Coney follows people on Twitter. Coney announces the games. And, uh... Yeah, I'm just flattered that I got to be David Coney on the mound. And, of course, he pitched the legendary perfect game. You can just tell he's a solid guy. with a smart guy.
1: Now, this is interesting. Because, obviously... You want to be on set. You can't do anything via Zoom, right? So it's been amazing to see these talk show hosts do that, like Colbert and Fowler. I know, I know. But then you go to baseball, and Michael Kay has to have that same energy, even if he's on the ballpark. It's amazing to watch these guys do it as if it's a regular game. I'm amazed by this.
0: Yep, you're hitting on... I think you're on the right path and you asked me earlier, would I do this and do that? I used to do the weather for Verizon and Bell Atlantic and it was back, I did the weather so long ago that it was the most like frequently called number in the DC area. So people to get their weather back in the day used to call WE61212 and I would get fan mail and I would, you would update it every four times and get the forecast from the, uh, from Dallas Airport and Reagan National Airport and stuff like that. But I used to, you know, relative humidity, 58%. Winds out of the south, 10 miles per hour. The barometer's is 29.97 and falling. And I'd say something funny at the end, like a tagline, like, hold on to your hat. For Verizon, I'm Kevin Witt. Mm-hmm. And I loved that. And everybody knew. My passion was what you're going to do, I think, or you're, you know, something you're interested in, or Kony or whoever. I wanted, I wanted to be a, a sportscaster. I wanted, to, I wanted to do all this stuff, whether it was ESPN or FS1. But I never moved to that small market. And I started booking like J. Crew and Foot Locker and Pizza Hut and got lucky, so somehow I ended up being an actor. But my whole entire life I've wanted to be a sportscaster and everybody I know, from people that are high up at Fox News to any network you can name are like Kevin. And I don't know anything about it. I don't even know what a really a podcast is, to be perfectly honest, but but I keep doing these interviews and stuff. I would love to sit and talk sports all day because I am I Football, basketball, baseball, golf, tennis, like, I, I know it all inside and out. I know the analytics. I know all the players. I work with a lot of the guys. I, I would work for the MLB Network tomorrow if they called me or one of these places, and I would do it, you know, with passion. Just like you're saying, Michael Kay and those guys, they're doing it with passion. I, I just, I live for sports. So, yeah, I don't, unless I have the biggest job ever, I say that during March Madness and the baseball playoffs, unless I'm doing a major principal role for a major network, I'm not working during March Madness or the baseball playoffs. I'm watching those games. All
1: right. I got to ask you this because I'm, I'm very curious. Sure. Do you have the same passion for baseball and sports? Would you say it's same amped up, I want to watch every pitch, like it is when you say, All right, I'll stand here and do every take you need to do? Like, do you find there's a correlation of passions there? Like, that patience, that yeah, I'm passionate about this job, so I'm going to keep going no matter how many takes, no matter how many pitches. Do you find any correlation to that?
0: You're asking some great questions. I would say not quite at the
1: intensity. Like, if you
0: made me miss, if the Yankees play a seven-game series against the Astros this fall or a five-game or whatever the new playoff format is, if you made me miss those games and I wasn't allowed to watch them, I would lose my mind. Like, that would be brutal for me. Okay, so when you're doing the acting thing, that's a great question. I do have that passion because it's so few and far between that you get those principal roles and you're the one guy they're focusing on for two hours during the camera and you want to get the takes right. You get on a high. You do think, you'd be surprised, man. People will do anything for a camera. And I I've, there's so many examples. I mean, I shot a Heineken national campaign for like 500 bucks that, 10 years ago would have been 5,000 because anybody will do anything for free. If we walk outside right here in Shelton, Connecticut and say, Hey, I'm going to put you on the cover of time magazine. We might only have to pay a guy $5, right? Because anybody will do it and anybody wants to be on the cover of time magazine. So now we have the integrity of these projects, you know, people will do anything to make a buck and people will do anything for no money. So when I am in front of the camera, back to your question, I, I do have that intensity maybe not at the same level but you will do anything i've had my shirt off and jumped in 50 degree pools which which is ice cold for people that don't know i've done super bowl commercials in the in the winter where they're hosing us down and we're doing a car commercial and stuff like that you will do things you would never think you would do and you get on a high and you will do take after take when you are like the star or the principal or whatever so yes i will i'm passionate about it and you get that chance so little that if Joel Schumacher, who passed away this year, who directed me in House of Cards, if somebody wants to do 20 takes, I do get on that same kind of high. It's just, I just think I I couldn't live without sports. When this happened, when the Masters got canceled and the March Madness, I couldn't live without it. I could live without acting, I guess. I could live without it, but you're right. I am, if you give me 20 takes, I'll do 30. You know what I mean? When you're the main guy, you'll do anything to get it right.
1: That is a great, uh, that's a great attitude. And, you know, I've seen... Well, I've been on movie sets. I was on the I got to send you these pictures. Of George Clooney and Nicole Kidman on The Peacemaker. They shot right outside my building down the block. Uh, and so I got to meet them. Uh, and, but the point is, and then I would see other scenes in Manhattan, which, by the way, I hope to see more shooting because it is cool to see a movie set in New York City or whatever they're filming. But you see these guys. I saw Susan Sarandon do a take after take after take. And that's dedication, yep. man, to have that will to just say, OK. We'll do it again. Now, I know sometimes tempers can flare if it's too much. I don't think, I, I I doubt you've had that, but any moments of like, come on, why are we doing it again?
0: Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Especially when it's, uh, when it's not Robert De Niro or Chris Rock or, or somebody that's highly respected. You know, a lot of the TV directors may have great credentials but you've never even heard of them like because they direct they'll bring in a new director i don't know if you know this for like every episode like law and order one week will be a director that's got a ton of accolades then next week it'll be another director that's a writer that you've never heard of so yeah i and you see everybody making the faces and doing whatever some directors will come in and try to control the show and everybody's looking at them with sarcasm like believe me we got this take an hour ago you know what I mean? Like we've got this, like it's, this is just unnecessary and the guy's on a power trip or the girl. So yeah, this, uh, that definitely happens. But my attitude as a hard worker and whatever, once I'm on set, you can keep me there for 15 hours. Like I don't care. I'd rather, I'd rather grind it out, get it right. And I'd rather make the overtime and I'd rather make the money. So I'll, I'll stay there as long as they want me always.
1: Well, I am genuinely, genuinely wanting to have you back because you've, You've opened up some more, you know, ideas to talk about House of Cards and, um, sure. And, and, and even female directors. I kind of want to get your take on that. But that could be saved for another podcast. You're not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. And I think we should leave the listeners up for a little more excitement to come with Kevin Lee what, That's what do you awesome.
0: Think? <laughs> I think it's great.
1: I'll, uh, I'll
0: join you anytime. And I really, really, really respect you and your journey and what you're doing and people like me that, you know, Everybody struggles when you look at people and, you know, you know yourself, you can look at people that are 50 times off worse than you and it doesn't change the way you feel like you, you don't want that person to be worse off than you. So I just admire your positive attitude. I go through rough days. I've battled with all this stuff and depression and you get sad and you don't even want to be on the earth, but people like you inspire me to, you know, to keep going and that there's a positive light at the end of the tunnel and we get to do things like this. I can't imagine if we didn't get to do this. So this is great that we met.
1: And I got to say, so on that note, what's the future looking like? I know you just said you booked a couple. So is the future brighter than when we first started talking about the pandemic? I guess is my question for Kevin Lee. Whitt.
0: Much brighter, although I'm uncertain and we can't predict that there's going to be a relapse and we can't predict that there's going to be crazy people that aren't peaceful, that are not bad you know, that are not good moral people that want to knock down stores and have unpeaceful protests. Like I can't predict any of that, but the future is way brighter. Like even this is just a nibble. Believe me, there's no production in New York yet. Or my soul, my sole purpose is to get back to New York city, have my privacy, have my life and be okay. I want to be safe, healthy, live in a modest apartment and just have a normal life and grind it out and make a living. So that is my ultimate goal. But yes, the future is bright because you know i just i know i'm going to get back there i know that the world because of positive people like you you got to you got to believe that, that people are good inherently and we need sports music and acting and entertainment everybody got through this pandemic watching netflix and hulu and things that i do even though people joke around oh, you're just an actor and they you know they take you as a joke they don't realize it's a real career and people make a living at it full time but yes the future's bright just booked an NFL campaign. I had the fitting Friday in the city. It was really weird to be in the city for the first time because it was not normal. It's not normal not being able to go where I've gone for 17 years and sit in a restaurant or do anything. But I shoot it, uh, they say tomorrow. It's either tomorrow or Friday. That's the other thing about the business. You never know. I'm up for a national campaign. Def- I've already booked it. I'm shooting it. And they still haven't told me whether it's tomorrow or Friday. But I will be in there. I'm shooting. I'm working hard. And yes, the future is much brighter than it was on March 12th when I didn't even really want to be on the earth anymore. So, yes. Much uh, more positive. I'm,
1: Kevin and Lee Witt, I love this. I, I love your journey. I love hearing your story. and You seem like a really awesome dude. Hope to meet you in person when the city's back up and running more and more and when you're able to come back down. But for now, on the NFL note, I'm playing the NFL on Fox theme to give people some hope that, yes, that is coming back too. We're, we got some stuff going Let's on. Let's hope. Moving along here. I'm Alex Garrett, Alex Garrett Podcasting, my guest Vince Kevin Lee Witt. We'll have him back and we'll talk to you again.
0: Thank you, my friend.